Church, good morning. We welcome to our pulpit this morning, uh, investors absence, Matt Reagan. Matt is no stranger to us here at ECBC, a homegrown, and we are just thrilled to have him come and open God's word to us. Matt and his wife, Lisa, live in Minneapolis. He's the campus outreach director for Minneapolis area and serves under John Piper's ministry there at Bethlehem Baptist. They have two children, Annie and Lucy, three and one. So join me in welcoming to uh, the pulpit this morning, Matt Reagan. Matt. Clapping is weird for me. Um, if you are a first-time visitor, guest, or you know, if you've been coming here for a month, checking it out, uh, bear with me for a minute. But I want to give just a few minutes of, of thanks. I started going here in 1982-ish. I was one. Uh, and so uh, I was carried here in 1982. Uh, it wasn't here. It was down there by Wando on Whipple Road. Um, as early as I can remember, we met in a sanctuary that was a real nasty orange. It became the Fellowship Hall. It was gross. Um, I didn't think it was gross. I was four. And then, and I remember just, just throughout, I was raised here. That's what I'm telling you. I, I remember walking down the hall in the gum lady, uh, Eleanor Johnson. Um, she passed away last year, something like this. Uh, she's with Jesus. Uh, she, she would, all I knew her as is the gum lady. She would, she would give us gum. I could choose the gum. It was sugar-free, I think. Um, I, I didn't know that I knew this was going. Uh, I didn't know that the gum lady behind the scenes was was a warrior. I, di- I didn't know that she was praying for my soul uh, and yours. I didn't. I didn't know these things. I, I remember in, I was five years old, six years old. We had the the new, really cool sanctuary at this point, still on Whipple Road. And Buster, in the middle of a service, I was kind of a precocious little five-year-old and I knew my state capitals or something. I didn't really know European history, but Buster calls on me and says, hey, Matt, which is bigger, Italy or the United States? In the middle of the service, I'm like five, and I, I didn't know the answer. I just knew Italy was shaped like a boot at that point. And, and I kind of tried to stall, or this kind of thing, until he said, actually, it's the size of Arizona, Italy is, and you know, the United States is much bigger. I felt really sheepish. Uh, kind of mortified. I was like, oh, I didn't even know that. I was supposed to know that. But I didn't know. I, that's what I knew. So that's what I took away from that sermon that day, consciously. But, it, you know, Italy is the size of Arizona, and I blew it. Uh, but consciously, I didn't, uh, or unconsciously, I didn't know that the Lord was making gospel deposits in my life through you. Okay, we'll just call it you. All the elbows and hands and toes and eyes of the body here. Uh, and individuals representing it. I didn't know that my living and now some dead with Christ heroes, uh, I I didn't know what he was doing when I was five and six and seven. Uh, I remember after a a tough few years in in my family, Craig Harris coming back and saying, uh, he was a youth pastor at that time, had finished coaching Wando football and and came to me and and wrote me back into the youth group and started teaching me some more uh, consciously about sin and grace and me my little pharisaical mind beginning to take in that I was a sinner uh, and, and walking through shoot, high school. And, and, and then I remember, well, uh, all along the way, Buster prank calling my dad every week about his hair or lack thereof and, and, and just thinking he's fun and he's goofy, but not knowing that all the things that Lord was working in my heart, he was working a few steps ahead in, in Buster's heart. So I go off to, to Furman and come back. And, and at that point, Every time I come back here, I'm, I'm, the Lord is doing revolutionary things in my heart uh, about his grace and the gospel and who Christ is for me. And then I come back and, and I'm like, 
Buster is softening. He's growing and learning these and teaching me these things ahead of the curve. And then we, uh, my junior year, Craig Harris comes to me at, at, at uh, a Furman Citadel football game and, and sits down with me. He said, I just listened to this sermon by John Piper. It's called Doing Missions with Dying is Gain. And uh, I, that, was our, that was like our jam. You know, that was our sermon. That was the thing that we listened to was Doing Missions with Dying is Gain. It was the thing that was mobilizing college students everywhere. And he said, I listened to it and I looked at Rafia. He had a great life here. And he said, let's go. What are we doing here? And the impact on me throughout all... And then we, we moved to Minnesota. And all you guys say, why? Why do you move to... You think it's Michigan, but it's Minnesota or Canada. It's Minnesota. We live there now in Minneapolis. I've been there. I got married in 2006 to, to Lisa. We have children now. We're watching the Lord do massive things for his kingdom. And, and along the way, as, as a church, church as a whole and then individually, you guys have, have supported us so rightly we come home so so graciously we come home and and we feel family here it it feels a big 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 family but a family it it feels like home so i just want to say thanks Uh, thank you Uh, i'm one of those kids that buster manhandles and you know for the 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 baby dedication and and scares them a little bit and that but what's going on right there is you guys are committing to those children that's me 30 years ago i'm 31 now is a vapor's breath Buster was 28 then, he's, do the math now, and, and, and it was a vapor's breath, and there's a little vapor's breath, and I'm done here. 50 years, says the life expectancy, maybe tomorrow, maybe today, and I'm done. And, and you, in, in the God's divine plan, the reason, the bi- one big, big, big ingredient in this whole puzzle, through God's will, his plan is that you would see me believe. I believe because of you. I'm going to spend eternity with Jesus because of you, because of what God has done in you. So I just want to say thanks. Thank you. Uh, it's a big deal. Um, okay. Now for the no tears part, hopefully. Um, we're still a group of ragtag sinners here. Heroes and sinners. In fact, you know, heroes in so much as we know that we're sinners. That, that's the, the counterintuitive piece of it. So I'm asking a question today, which is, uh, is the primary aim of your life, and if you zoom in a little bit, your day, and if you zoom in a little bit more, your moment, your moment is the primary aim to be impressive, presentable, impressive, looking good, or is it to be impressed, to be admirable, or to admire, to be honorable, or to be in awe? right? To be honoring another. And, and not just any other. Specifically, we're talking about Jesus Christ here. So it, it, is the primary aim of your day, this is where it gets a little tougher, to look good to Jesus or for him to look good to you? Is the primary aim of your day, and you might say, uh, B, it's B, I'm a Christian. But I, I don't think it's quite that simple because this is the fork in the road at every juncture in your life. This is, the, this is the, the linchpin. You go the way of the new creation or you go the way of the old creation. Right here. Whether you're impressive or not. Okay? It's how am I going to look? How am I going to look? Or he's wonderful. How am I doing? Or man, he's unbelievable. And, and, and then when you, you get on the horizontal level with your family, you say, for me, it looks like this. I've been... I've been getting my hind end kicked around by this reality all week, just thinking about it. Uh, my wife, so often what I think about my wife and my kids is, how can I be a good husband right now? How can I be 
a good father right now. And that's just a subtle difference. There's a subtle difference between that and how's my wife? Or she's beautiful. How's she doing? How are my kids? They, what do they need? But there's this self-absorption that comes and says, am I, am I a good and honorable man? I stand on the stage of my, you know, Shakespeare, all the world's a stage. I stand on the stage of, of my life rather than Jesus in that moment. Or rather than whoever the other is you know, on the relational family level that should be on the stage right there, I look at and say, how can I lift them up? How can I help them? So it's, it is a dilemma. I have three Ds for you today. They're in the bulletin. Dilemma, you can call it danger if you want to. Uh, desire and design. They're, they start with D so you can remember them. So uh, the, it's a dilemma for two reasons. Uh, one is because it is the cultural air that we breathe. It's the cultural air that we breathe on, on a secular culture level and even on a Christian subculture level. On a secular culture level, it's the air that we breathe in the sense that everything we do, everything you see in the media all the time is how impressive can you be, how can you accomplish, how can you achieve, how can you compete and be the best. Uh, even the army, which is a, a cause, it's a, it's a devoted cause to an entity larger than oneself. The old, the old adage, the old motto for the army was, be all that you can be, right? That's a navel-gazing slogan. And, and the newer one is an army of one, right? There might be one since then, I don't know, but an army of one, which you think it should say something like, America! You know, something like that should be, the, should be the slogan for the army, but it's not. So you breathe this in in your culture, but then even in our little subculture, just because you're part of the human race, this is your fork in the road, because you're part of the United States, it's your fork in the road. And, and because it's, you're, you live east of the Cooper, it's your fork in the road. It is the thing that you're dealing with. You know, you walk in here. You know what it feels like when you walk in here. And, and, and you, how am I looking? Handshake, strong, good southern strong handshake, right? I feel it. I, every time I come in here, I'm coming from out of town. I'm in college ministry. All y'all are doctors. And so when I talk to you, doctor, you're, you're a doctor. Did you expect me to be a doctor? I was a smart kid. And, and, and I, this is my battle. This is my fork in the road, okay? I'm starting to go down the way of me on the stage. I forgot my sermon notes this morning. My wife walked in during the prayer of Thanksgiving and handed me a sermon notes. Like, did anybody see? They had their eyes open. What was that? Because, because I'm so, I, I, I have this desire to be impressive. And you have it. You have it. Even all the way on the, on the sounds right Christian subculture level. I'm going to show you a friend of ours, uh, that guy. Uh, for the record, I love this guy, even though I'm a Bulldogs fan. Uh, I, I think that he does, the, the Lord uses him mightily in the kingdom. And, and I, I think he's a really solid kid. I know a lot of you want your daughters to marry him and whatnot. Uh, but there is a culture, not, this is not an indictment on Tim Tebow. I think it's an indictment on the culture surrounding him. Uh, there is a culture around Tim Tebow that, that because he is, I mean, just by default, he's a strong, good-looking kid. He really works hard. He wills his team to victory in the midst of bad spirals, or, you know, not spirals. Uh, he, he wills his team to victory, and he is, in and of himself, something of a role model. And so what happens is we start to think in terms of uh, this culture develops where we say what it means to be a believer is to be a strong, fast, determined role model. We're going to be as good at being Christ as we can be. And that's what it means. Tim Tebow. 
right? And, and, and you know, he, he has the verses on his eye black. That one, Philippians 4.13. I'm hoping Tim's not using it out of context, but I think the Tebow culture does. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me ultimately means I can be content in him. In, in Philippians 4. I can be content in him when I have need because he's everything to me. Not, I can run over a linebacker, right? I don't think that's what Tim Tebow means. I think he just sees a platform and puts it on his eye black. But I wonder if that's what we think it means sometimes. So we have to be careful both in the secular culture and in our subculture how we think about it. Do we do, Luther calls it a theology of glory. Do we, do, do, do we have a theology of glory as opposed to a theology of the cross where everything about Jesus is really a means to the end of our own personal, victorious self-betterment, self-improvement? If I can be an upstanding man, upright in all my business dealings, then that, my joy is complete. That's, that's what my life is for. And I would say that that is a very subtle difference in, in, when you take that fork in the road. That's, that's the second point, subtlety. Uh, Luther says, by, by so much more are the works of man mortal sins when they are done without fear and in unadulterated evil self-security. So there's a way, there's, it's just a subtle difference. There's a way to be an upstanding man or woman, a, a good mother and wife that, is, that, that flows from beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. I love him. Everything comes from him. And then there's a way that you d- determine, I will be strong, I will be honorable, I will be presentable, I will look good. And it's very, very subtle to tell the difference. There are men uh, standing up here, I think it was last week, Buster was preaching on 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, and esteeming your leaders. And they stand up here, and all of those men, what I hope and pray is that every single man, I know some of them, I don't know a lot of them, I know a lot of them stand by, they, they go the right way at that fork, um, some of the time anyway, a lot of the time, but it's so subtle. A man could stand there and say, Am I impressive? Am I honorable as a man? And that's the the core aim of his life. And the man sitting next to him could say, I love the Lord Christ. I love him. He's unbelievable. How could he have taken the wrath for me? Those are different perspectives that may have a very similar presentation. And we want one and not the other. So I ask, how do you handle a verse like Hebrews 10, 14? Hebrews 10, 14, it says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being made perfect. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you say, I can't believe by a single offering he has made me perfect? Or do you say, I'm being made perfect? The point of the verse is the the first half, not the second half. The second half is a byproduct of the first half. But so often I think what we do is, if I'm going to be on the stage, it's about how much God is going to make me to be before it's about, I can't, by one offering? What an unbelievable idea. What a story. How powerful is that for me? Those are, those are different, different thoughts. So it's the cultural air we breathe, and it's subtle. In uh, Prince Caspian, Prince Caspian, Aslan is uh, interacting with Reepicheep. He's an honorable little warrior mouse, about two feet high, and he lost his tail in battle. He says, I am confounded. I'm completely out of countenance. I must crave your indulgence for appearing in this unseemly fashion. What do you want with a tail? Asked Aslan. Sir, said the mouse, I can eat and sleep and die for my king without one. But a tail is the honor and glory of a mouse. I have sometimes wondered, friend, said Aslan, whether you do not think too much about your honor. Profound. You think, think, do you think a lot about your honor? I would say that all of us probably think too much about your own, about our own honor. So, uh, that is the 
question and the dilemma. That's the danger that we face. But I want to look at the desire that we have, the desire for what it, what it should look like. Let's go, let's go to John 3, uh, and you can open your Bible if you want. I'll put it up on the screen. John 3, I'll start in verse 25 and go to verse 30. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So, so pause for a second. John's baptizing over here. Jesus is baptizing over here. John's a big dog. He, he's a big wig in, in, the, in the spiritual culture, okay, in the purification culture. And they come to him and they, that, and they come to John and say, that they're all going to Jesus. How do you handle that? They're going to him to be purified. What, you can't purify? He purifies? How does that work? You know in John's heart at that moment he comes to that fork, right? You would think. I would. Whoa, 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 whoa. Because what, what just happened is John, is John is beginning to fade into the, the background here. John is no longer the man, the voice. This is the place where we say, am I going to be on the stage or is he? And this is John's response. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have, I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So I want to give you three things, three parts of this response uh, as John's example in our desire. This is what we want. Remember, Jesus said about John, there's nobody born among men greater than John. Nobody greater. And this is, this is greatness personified right here. This is what John says. Number one, I, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. So they say, hey, John, how are you going to handle Jesus? He's getting bigger than you. What are you going to do? And John says, I can't do anything unless it's given me from heaven. He is heaven. <laughs> he is heaven. I, I have to get it from him. Is that, is that your natural response? Do you, I, I, I absurdly boast over genetics. I boast over natural talents. I didn't do one thing for them, and yet I boast over them. I care a lot about how smart I was because my parents were smart. I didn't do anything for that. It's absurd. Rather than saying my desire is to say a person can't receive even one thing if it's given to him from heaven. So immediately you deflect. It's like, that's wonderful. You say, he's wonderful. That's wonderful. He's wonderful. That's amazing. He's amazing. Boom. That, that becomes the pattern of our lives. It's a deflection of glory. So John is himself an impressive guy, and immediately all the impressive things about him, every bit of purity, he says, I, I can't receive one thing unless it's given to me from heaven. I was given this role. I didn't, I didn't carve out this role for me. I was given this role. So how do you do the impressive things? Why do you do the impressive things that you do? Why do you work out? It's toughy. You work out to look good, to be impressive? It's not okay. Just to look good. Just to want to look good, and that's why you work out. At least not for your own self-admiration and worship. That one's convicting me. Why do you do the impressive things you do? Do you want to participate in the glorious image of Jesus, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, enjoying him, you know, Eric Little, I run, but, you know, God made me fast. When I run, I feel his pleasure. That's why I run. Why? Number two, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. That's his response. Look at this guy, Jesus. I'm not him. 
I am not the Christ. This joy of mine is now complete, he goes on to say. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So, so they come to Jesus. It, it really sounds like this, okay? Uh, they come to John and they say, John, what about Jesus? And John's looking at Jesus. He said, what, what? I'm sorry? He, him. Do you see him? Did you say something about me? I didn't notice. I didn't notice. The bridegroom is here. I hear his voice. He's here. The one that my entire existence is oriented around is here. The one who is all my joy is here. So I didn't notice. My joy is complete because he's here. Can you say that? Do you want to say that? I'm not the Christ. I know it's easy to say that. I'm not Jesus. But this is, this is the, the core issue here. It's a happy thing to say, I'm not him. I don't want to replace him. He is the one who completes my joy when he's there. Not when I become like him. That's not the primary reason. The pro- that's a byproduct. The primary thing I want to do is just see him. Well, be with him. Receive all the gifts that he has for me. It's a different thing. All together. John Piper wrote, an, wrote a letter to, a, I think it was an insecure teenager. That's what he called it on his blog in our congregation and it was, the kid was asking how'd you grow how do you how'd you grow up i'm insecure right now if i don't feel comfortable with myself and piper said i think the key for me was finding help in the apostle paul and c.s lewis and my father all of whom seemed incredibly healthy precisely because they were so absolutely amazed at everything but themselves they showed me that the highest mental health is not liking myself but being joyfully interested in everything but myself they were the type of people who were so amazed that people had noses not strange noses just noses that walking down any busy street was like a trip to the zoo. Oh yes, they themselves had noses, but they couldn't see their own. And why would they want to? Look at all these noses that, are free to, that are, we're free to look at. It's amazing. It's hard to look at your nose, but I can look at y'all's noses. The capacity of these men for amazement was huge. I marveled and I prayed that I would stop wasting so much time and so much emotional energy thinking about myself. That's a pretty simple statement right there, but so challenging to do. Stop wasting so much time so much emotional energy thinking about myself. So John goes on to say third, he must increase, but I must decrease. The fight, hear this, the fight of the Christian life is not to become stronger or better or faster, but rather to become peripheral in your own existence. Okay? The, the, The fight is not to become stronger, faster, better, but to become peripheral in your own existence. You are not central here. You are not the protagonist in your story. There's another. Love, sure. Significant to him, sure. But not the hero. Not the central character on this stage. You're in, you're in I guess, somewhere between an extra and the, the damsel in distress. Maybe more like the damsel in distress. So finally, the, the design. How does God do, how does this process look in our lives? What does this look like? Second uh, Corinthians 3.18, I've quoted a couple times now. It says, with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, right? So, so we have our faces unveiled, we, we look at him, and we get transformed. That's how we pursue godliness. You look at him. You look at him. Self-god, self-conscious godliness may be no godliness at all. Be careful with your self-conscious pursuit of godliness. How do you pursue it? And the answer is, I want to be godly, I look over here. I want to be godly, I go the indirect route. 
That's how I do it. So uh, th- if, you, if you double-click on 2 Corinthians 3, 18, and you say, okay, get, let it be clear here. Gazing at his face, that still sounds a little bit literary. What does that mean? And I, I think this is something like what the, what the process looks like. First, I'll give you the, the, this. First, I think what God does is he, he shuts us up in our own consciousness of our sin. This, this cycle happens over and over and over again, maybe over the course of your day, but definitely in the course of your life. He, he shuts you up in the consciousness of your own sin. If you want to battle against trying to be impressive, the first place you go is to know your sin. Not just your past sin, but your current sin. You don't have to make it up, I promise. You don't have to make it up, it's there. There's some of it that's heinous. You have to know the tax collector, the one who went down to his house justified, said, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. In Luke 18, that's the cry of the Christian every day of your life. That's my cry. I want it to be conscious of my own sin, stuck in my own sin. The center of the gospel is you are not impressive. You're not. Hear that. I don't know if there are any college students in here. Maybe I should say it's 1130. But you hear it your whole life. I heard it my whole life, okay? And obviously there are certain levels of impressiveness and whatnot. But the core message of the gospel, the entryway, is you're not impressive. He's impressive for you. That's how it works. So you hear that. You get stuck there. You say, where do I go? I can't be impressive anymore. I'm not putting on a real good show right now. I'm not impressive. You get stuck. And then you move over from the consciousness of your sin to God's unconsciousness of your sin. In Hebrews 10, he says, I just, where there's forgiveness of sins, where, where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any remembrance of sins. That's what he said. Just, I cast it as far as the east is from the west. So you go from, you're totally conscious, and then you look to Christ who, who removes your sin from you at that point. He, you see how unconscious he is. You're, you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And at that point, your consciousness goes to the cross of Christ and just stays there. I heard, I heard Kevin DeYoung one time said, um, for every one look at yourself, you take ten looks at the cross. For every one look at yourself. That's a simple and profound statement. One look at yourself, ten at the cross. You go there, and you live there, And at that point, this is how God moves you to a place where instead of trying to be impressive, you are impressed. You get stuck in your own sin. You look at him. He says, I don't remember your sin. I cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. And you say, how can that be? I like that. I like that you would confer that status on me. That you would say, you're as righteous as my son in him because of what he did. So you get that craving for status. You get it. But it also kills your desire for status because you're not the one who actually achieves it for yourself. So you get your needs met. Now you're free to just admire him. And the beauty of this whole thing, and this is where we're going to end, the beauty of this whole thing is that Jesus not only provides the means to get to a place, he provides the means for you to have an unveiled face. He, He provides a means for you to get to a place where you can say, I don't have to look at myself anymore. My needs have been met in Christ. I'm righteous in him. My sins have been cast away from me. And so now you're ready. You're you're sitting in the seat ready to watch whatever this movie is. But in the means of doing it, he shows himself more admirable than anywhere else. You don't say, okay, now I'm ready. Be admirable to me. He has shown himself to be as admirable as he will be. That's the power of the gospel. Not only do, is it the thing that is the means to the, to the end of you not having to be impressive anymore, it's also the movie that's on the screen. It's the thing that you watch, you say, uh, 
when you see it, you say, this is indeed glorious. He has spoken in his son, and he couldn't have spoken any clearer, any prettier, any more beautiful, beautifully than in his son. So when John the Baptist, who's looking at Jesus, right? What? What? Oh, the bridegroom's here. I don't care. My joy is complete. At that point, what he's saying to everybody, he, says it, he said it two chapters before, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There is nothing more beautiful than the Lamb of God coming to take away the sins of the world. So, the one practical application I have for you today is to practice the discipline of repentance. The discipline of repentance. Hard thing to do. I don't like to, to look at my sin. But uh, maybe every night before you go to bed, there are some of you probably too, too introspective here. Maybe you don't need to count your sins. But for the most part, what we need to do is practice the discipline of repentance. We need to be able to say, Lord, I'm sorry for this, this, and this. And you know we have a tendency to look, to try and control it by saying, well, I did pretty well in this, and I walked an old lady across the street, and, I, and you know, fill in the blank, something external, but you go a couple layers deeper and you say, I did not love you with my whole heart today. I did not rejoice nearly as much as is merited by your death for me and the promise of heaven. I didn't do it today. You, you start there. It's the entryway into everything. If you cannot know your sin you will go down that fork of, that, that, the, that, that side that says, be impressive. You are impressive. You're on the stage. But if you know your sin, it, just, there's, it, it cascades into the glory of the cross. So know your sin and understand that uh, the godliest among you, the greatest among you, are those who gaze at Jesus and forget themselves. And that'd be the aim today. So uh, let me close this in prayer. Father, we are in awe of you, the Lamb of God, and want to be in awe of you. I want to be happier and happier to say, you increase, I decrease. I'm happy, I'm a happy decreaser. I don't want to be in the middle of this stage. I want to watch your show, your sin-taking show. I want to be like John, the, the friend of the bridegroom, the attendant. Nobody watches the best man. Nobody watches the, the, the person in the congregation at a wedding. We watch the bridegroom. We want to watch you and enjoy you and let everything else take its place. As we, we desire to be holy. We just want to be holy because we know you. We can participate in you that much more. I pray that that would happen in here today. And again, I, I say thank you for this body of believers who have cared for us and shown us, modeled for us what it means to be Christ-centered over our over my 31 years. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.